0: Since weather is an issue this morning, services were cancelled in Creighton and Norfolk, and I felt that it would be helpful to record the sermon in my study and upload it. This morning we begin our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is first in our New Testament because it was first for the early church. For instance, in virtually every list of New Testament books, Matthew is listed first. It's also said that for at least two centuries, the church was built on the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was the most quoted book by second century pastors and teachers. What's more, the gospel of Matthew was written in the early years of the church. It's quoted in the Didache, which is a Christian training manual that existed as early as 70 AD, which means Matthew not only had to exist, but be well enough known to be reliable and useful. We tend to know the stories of Jesus so very well that we gloss over them and miss their importance. So I want to begin by saying how we must not approach Matthew, and then how we will approach Matthew, and then provide a basic outline of the book. how, How do we not approach Matthew? Well, three things. First of all, we must not approach the Gospel of Matthew as a series of unconnected stories. Most of you have seen these books that are called children's Bibles, which are not Bibles at all. They're storybooks. They're fine for small children, but they break up the Gospels into a series of unrelated stories. Jesus and the blind man, or Jesus and the woman at the well. If we continue to think of the Gospels as just a random collection of stories about Jesus, open to whatever interpretation occurs to us at the time, we will miss virtually everything they mean to tell us. By the way, as helpful as headings in our Bibles can be, they can never show us how the Gospels are knit together. So we will be careful to keep all of this in context. Second, we must not approach Matthew as a set of moral lessons. A well-known pastor said not too long ago that people who come to his church learn to live like Jesus taught us to live. And some of them even become Christians. In other words, he has reduced the Bible and the Gospels to nothing more than a system of morality and ethics. And he tells non-Christians a horrific lie. They can successfully live the life Jesus taught his disciples to live. Are there lessons in Matthew? Of course. But those lessons are not how to live a happy life or three ways to pray effectively. But what is a Christian and what are the principles of following Christ? Jesus' words at the end of Matthew tell us what the entire gospel is for. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Second, we must not approach the Gospel of Matthew, actually third, I apologize, we must not approach the Gospel of Matthew as mythology or fairy tales. Now surely no one would do that, would they? But that's exactly what we do when we mythologize a statement like Matthew six twenty four, you cannot serve God and money. Thinking that Jesus really meant that as long as we're nice to others and go to church, we can serve God and money as much as we like. Jesus calls us to live as his disciples, carrying our crosses, devoted to him in every way, living as his servants in this world with its politics and economy and culture. There's nothing remarkable about the person who hopes to live in heaven someday. There is something very remarkable about the person who lives as though the laws of heaven apply here and now. So how are we going to approach the Gospel of Matthew? First, we will approach the Gospel of Matthew as history. These are real events. These things really happened just as they're recorded. If you could go back in time and go to the village of Bethlehem and stand on the Hebron road that comes down from Jerusalem, you would see Joseph and Mary coming down the road. You'd hear the sound of their footsteps and the dirt. You would see the dust kicked up by the donkey's feet. You would hear Mary breathe a sigh of relief as the little town of Bethlehem came into view. If you could go over to the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea, perhaps to the Shueb Tributary, and went back, you you would see John the Baptist baptizing people, and see a 30-year-old Galilean walk down into the water and speak to John, and then John baptizing him, followed by a thunderous voice from heaven. These are incredible and wonderful events. They're often miraculous and astounding events, but they are also historical events. They really happened. Next, we will approach the Gospel of Matthew as revelation. The content of the Gospels is not stories about Jesus, but Jesus' teachings from his own lips. There are almost 1,100 verses in Matthew. Jesus speaks in 644 of them, or about 60%. Most of the 40% not spoken by Jesus is there to describe what Jesus was doing or to set the context for what he said. Little of Matthew can stand alone, so we will approach Matthew as God-breathed, Christ-centered revelation. Now, some have Bibles where the words of Jesus are printed in red. That's fine, as long as you remember that the red words aren't more Bible than the black words, and that whether spoken by Jesus or written by Peter, all scripture is equally God-breathed, equally inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. That being said, there is still something very moving about hearing what Jesus himself said. It's odd. Many people have the idea that Jesus was this easygoing, nonchalant kind of teacher who just wanted people to be nice to each other. And then Paul came along and made Christianity hard-nosed and challenging. Listen, Jesus is Lord, and he speaks as Lord. And some of the most challenging statements in the Bible were said by Jesus himself. And third, we will approach the Gospel of Matthew as a curriculum for discipleship. What do I mean by that? I mean that the purpose of the Gospels is not simply evangelism or even mainly evangelism. Most of Jesus' teaching in Matthew is not attempting to evangelize non Christians, but to educate Christians. Jesus tells us what it means to be his follower and how we should live as his followers. He tells us about his victory over sin and death and the devil. He tells us about his crucifixion and resurrection and why they matter. He tells us how we are to relate to God and to other Christians and the world. His emphasis at the very end of Matthew is not go and evangelize by sharing the four spiritual laws, but go and make disciples by baptizing sinners who devote themselves to me and teaching them to obey me carefully and passionately. J. Gresham Machen, a Princeton theologian, said in 1949, there can be no greater mistake than to suppose that Jesus ever separated theology from ethics. That is to say, we are in eternal danger if we think that having the right beliefs is enough without the right life. Jesus himself says in John seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father in heaven. So we approach Matthew this way because Jesus Christ is the focus of the gospels, not us. We don't come to the gospels to learn about ourselves, but about him. The gospels are not a mirror into our souls, but a window into the heart and the mind and the will of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me give you a brief outline of the gospel according to Matthew. We begin with the revelation of the king in Matthew 1 to 10. That's broken into three sections, the person of the king in 1 to 4, the principles of the king in 5 to 7, and the power of the king in 8 through 10. The person of the king, Jesus, is the son of David and the son of Abraham, the king of the Jews and the king of kings. He had a holy birth, and he was protected by God from a terrible threat. He was baptized by the forerunner and then driven into the wilderness to be proven holy by temptation. He preached his first sermons. He called his first disciples and he began his three years of ministry with power. The principles of the king are seen in verses 5 to 7 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus took his disciples to a mountain and began teaching them. These teachings were the core of what he had to say jesus repeated it consistently as he traveled in it he explains what it means to be his disciple he challenges and corrects the traditions and misinterpretations of the pharisees he establishes the will of god for spiritual life and he calls his disciples to complete commitment not simply so that they could have a good life but so they could have eternal life just as important the sermon on the mount also reveals the holiness of jesus in detail since he alone perfectly met these qualifications. And then in chapters 8 through 10, we see the power of the king confirming his authority to speak the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus exercised power over sickness, demons, sin, and his own disciples. Matthew records a number of healings and other miraculous events. Jesus' miracles were never isolated events. They always served to confirm his claims and his authority and the truth of his teachings. In the process of confirming his own role as Savior, he confronted the religious leaders and the multitudes, warning them of judgment for sin and promising mercy for repentance and faith. The next major section, Matthew 11 through 13, speaks of the rebellion against the king. We see the king's messenger rejected with the arrest of John the Baptist and his ultimate execution, and we see Jesus himself rejected. Those who should have been most familiar with Jesus, the theologians of the day, refused to repent and believe. But he shows himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of mercy, which only enrages the Pharisees, who accuse Jesus of working by the power of Satan. Matthew 13 through 20 shows us Jesus focusing primarily on the disciples. In chapter 13, he reveals the mysteries of the kingdom and explains why so many have rejected him and what the kingdom is like through parables. In chapter 14 through the middle of chapter 16, Jesus conducts a very public, private ministry. He keeps trying to get away privately with his disciples, but the forcefulness of the Pharisees and the needs of the people keep intruding, and he simply taught his disciples through those moments. The last half of chapter 16 is the revelation of the deity of Christ. The Father revealed Jesus' deity to Peter and the other disciples. In chapter 17, we see Jesus glorified, temporarily transfigured in the early part of the chapter so that his glory was visible, and then his glory being exercised over the demonic realm later on. And in chapters 18 through 20, we see a strong emphasis on humility. With the revelation of his glory, his disciples began to wonder which of them would be greatest. Well, Jesus revealed the essential humility of his kingdom, submission to God in all things. Then we come to the final week of Jesus' ministry, in Matthew 21 to 27. In on Sunday, Jesus... Uh, entered Jerusalem in what we call the Triumphal Entry. On Monday, Jesus entered the temple a second time and cleared it out. On Tuesday, after cursing a fig tree for being unfruitful, that's a picture of Israel's unfruitfulness, Jesus entered the temple a third time to teach at length, and he then returned to Bethany and was anointed for his burial. On Wednesday, Judas agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver On Thursday, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and then later in the evening, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where it passes into Friday as he prays, and then is arrested, is hauled around to various trials, is eventually crucified, dies on the cross, and is buried. On Saturday, the religious leaders asked Pilate to set a guard over Jesus' tomb, which he did And on Sunday, Jesus is raised from the dead in glory and in victory over death and sin. Matthew finishes his gospel with the Great Commission. Jesus commissioned his disciples in his church for a lifetime of ministry. He revealed the ongoing nature of his kingdom, which comes not through conquering nations or winning people groups. But by making disciples through baptism, that is personal identification with Christ, and training, teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. As we think about bringing this home, I want you to think about the words spoken 1,600 years ago by a pastor named John in the city of Antioch. He was later called Chrysostom, Golden Mouth, because of his preaching. He said this, as he introduced his sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. The Jews, when they were to approach the mountain that burned, and fire, and blackness, and darkness, and tempest, were commanded for three days before to abstain from their wives, and to wash their garments, and were in trembling and fear, both themselves and Moses with them. Much more we, when we are to hear such words, and to enter into heaven itself ought to show a greater self denial, not washing our garments, but humbling our souls and turning away from worldly things. They saw blackness and smoke and a tempest, but we shall see the King himself sitting on the throne of his glory. Here stands the trophy of the cross, glorious and conspicuous, the spoils won by Christ, the first fruits of our salvation. If we come in humility, we will see where death is crucified, where sin is hung up. We shall see the tyrant and chains and the freed multitude following the Savior. Consider what it is to hear how on the one side, God in heaven arose from his royal throne and leaped down upon the earth and into the grave. And on the other side, the devil set himself against him, veiled though he was in human nature. You will see death destroyed by death, and curse extinguished by curse, and the de- the domination of the devil destroyed by the very weapons by which he once held man captive. Let us rouse ourselves thoroughly and not sleep, for the gates of the king open to us the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we commit these weeks and months of study to you. We thank you for the precious gift of the gospel according to Matthew. We know that we will see Jesus in his incarnation. We know that we will hear him speak to us as if he were standing with us each week. Please grant us full faith in his authority and presence that we may know him fully and glorify him in every way. Amen.